We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lamello. My guest today initially played football, basketball, and baseball at North Carolina State. He ultimately focused on the gridiron and became a two-time All-American and a two-time ACC Player of the Year. He then played 16 years in the NFL, where he was a four-time All-Pro, the 1969 league MVP, and the 1973 comeback player of the year. None other than Tom Landry said of him, nobody in the history of the league is as strong as Gabe. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Roman Gabriel. Roman, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Hey, Rich. It's a real pleasure and an honor to be on Chase Hardware with you, and I thank you for letting an old-timer get on with you. <laughs> well, it's my pleasure, Roman. Um, uh, yeah, let's let's dig in. Uh, this should be fun. So, Roman, you were born in Wilmington, North Carolina. You went to New Hanover High School. You were, as I mentioned in my open, you played football, basketball, baseball. You were on multiple state champs, especially in basketball and baseball. You were drafted by the right. Yankees. Uh, you were signed to a contract by the or offered a contract by the Yankees. Um, and you were being recruited all over the country for football. You ultimately chose NC State. Tell me about your high school years in, uh, in Wilmington. Well, the amazing thing, Rich, also is that I'm very fortunate that I got to go to New Hanover High School because Tony Jurgensen also played for the same coach that I played for. And, uh, a guy named Trot Nixon, who was on that World Series Boston Red Sox team, we had a lot of great student athletes come out of New Hanover. And, of course, Sonny was my idol, being that he was from Wilmington, and I followed after him. But my high school days were great, probably some of the greatest days of my life. Yeah, Jurgensen was about five years older than you, right? He's an old man. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's pretty cool. So you, you remember like going down and watching them when, when you're in junior high, going down and watching him play in football, basketball, and baseball, right? The thing that I recall was when I was in high school, he used to come back in the summers and he'd come out to practice. And I was just amazed how... He never threw anything but a spiral. I've never to this day 
seen any NFL quarterback in my lifetime. Every pass was always a spiral. And then what I remember watching him in the uh, remember when they used to have the college all star game against the Packers. Sure, in Chicago. Right, and Sonny was on the on the college all star team, and I remember when he threw one behind his back, a perfect spiral out left for about a ten yard gain on a hitch route. Yeah, that's that's amazing, and and you guys. Well, here we'll we'll get to that in a second. So so um so you're you're coming out of uh, New Hanover High School. You're being recruited at Notre Dame and you know many other schools. Sonny's down at Duke. Um, you choose to go to North Carolina State. Did you want to stay local, or did you like the fact that they were going to let you play all three sports? Well, that plus I knew NC State was closer to me to go back and forth, and that I couldn't go to Notre Dame because I, there was no way I could thumb back and forth because I didn't have a car. And NC State also had some, uh, several of the guys that I played with in high school were on their baseball team. Got it. And so, and so you go, so this is the Atlantic coast conference and you initially, the, the plan is you're going to play all three sports there. How, how was that? Was it, was that your freshman year you were doing that? Well, my freshman year, and then I had to drop one. And the one I had to drop is probably the one that, at that time in my life that I enjoyed playing the most. That was basketball. In order for me to be able to bring up my grades and, and do what I was supposed to be there for to get an education first course. Dropped basketball and then played, then had uh, played football, and baseball the next three years. Okay, well, and it must have worked because in addition to being a two-time All-American and the two-time ACC Player of the Year, you were also a two-time Academic All-American at NC State. Yeah, that's, a, that's probably the thing I'm most proud of because I'm the only one in my family that ever got a college education. Oh wow! I, I don't, I don't mean to mean my father because my father was my hero. He was a Filipino that came to this country and worked all his life, died at 96, still working. Wow, those are good genes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and so at NC State, you set basically every school passing record. Uh, I think I saw it was 22 passing records. You set nine ACC passing records. Um, and, yeah, you know, nowadays, they, nowadays they do that in one day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it's pretty cool that you set nine ACC passing records, considering Sonny Jurgensen, the guy you grew up watching, you know, at your own high school, was at Duke. So some of those records, I'm sure, were his. And so then, so you're coming out of NC State with all these records and accolades, and um, you're drafted. This is back when, obviously, there's the AFL and the NFL. You're drafted first overall by the Raiders in the AFL and second overall by the Rams in the NFL. You choose the Rams. What, what went into your decision there? Well, at the time, the Rams were the more established team, and they ended up giving me a little bit more money. Of course, back in that day, a little bit was a whole lot. The difference in the contract was in the signing bonus. The Raiders offered me 2500 and the Rams offered me 5000 Of course, that 5000 was over three years, but it still was more than – and plus the Rams were going to – uh, it's amazing how gullible we were in my day. In my contract, they said for every game I started, I would get a $50 bonus. And, of course, in my first four years, I didn't start many games because we had so many quarterbacks running in and out. The NFL at that time was more, the more established league. So. And, it, and it's interesting. You go to the Rams, and their coach, right when you get there, 
is a legendary Ram player and quarterback, Bob Waterford. Yeah, Bob Waterford. Yep. Um, the, the team gets off to a bit. The, the first year you're there, it's it's a bad year. You guys are one twelve and one, um, and he's let go. Guess who got that one? Guess who got that one tie? The only game I played in that year. Oh, I know it was you. Against <laughs> Minnesota. Yeah, and and Waterfield is let go. What was it like? I mean, I granted it was only for training camp and half a season, but what was it like having a Hall of Fame quarterback and Ram legend be your coach? Well, I knew all about Bob Waterfield, and knowing that I was going to a team that had a great quarterback like him, somewhere during the line, he decided that I wasn't the kind of guy, I guess because he hadn't seen too many of my size. He did, He made a comment to the newspapers. They asked him why I wasn't playing more. He says, well, he's just not able to walk and chew gum at the same time. So this reporter, Mel Clark, I think it was, it worked for the LA Times. He interviewed me, so what do you think? I said, well, Hey, no wonder. I don't walk and chew gum at the same time. I run when I chew my gum. But that really <laughs> hurt me when the comment came out. But I answered it the best way I could. <laughs> That's a good line. <laughs> well, and, and it kind of gets back to the comment that I, I opened with from Tom Landry. Nobody is as strong, you know, in the league. And if you if you watch even just five minutes of your video clips, it's amazing how many tackles you break where, you know, somebody's about to bring you down and you just break free. Um, so ultimately, Bob Waterfield's, you know, uh, Hall of Fame career aside, it, it paid to be that big and, and that strong. I got on a weightlifting program at NC State, and that's how I gained, got my, gained my strength. So that helped me as an NFL player be able to stand in and, because at the time I wasn't getting to play as much. So as long as I, I figured as long as I could shed people, that gave me more time to do what I could do. Yeah. That's actually that's actually pretty impressive in, in the early 60s, because, you know, I've talked to a lot of guys who didn't get into weights until and these are even linemen until the late 60s or early 70s. So that's you're kind of ahead of your time on that. The interesting thing, Rich, is that teams didn't have a weight room. We didn't have a weight room. So what I ended up doing was playing the health club. At the time, we were practicing at Sepulveda the Recreation Park out in the San Fernando Valley and practice at Bur Burbank Baseball Stadium, and I was living in Sepulveda, so there was a gym there that I joined, and that's how I kept lifting. It's amazing. Um, and so on that team, you're drafted second overall in the first round. Yeah, they got a good one and two. They got Merle Nelson was one. I was two, and he and I roomed together all our career. Yeah, I, I, that's amazing. Um, and so you guys come in, and you've got a veteran quarterback, Zeke Burkowski, in front of you. You've got and, Dick Bass. Zeke became a good friend. Zeke helped me a lot. He, Zeke was a fine quarterback, and I was sort of glad when he got to show what he could do when he went to Green Bay and got to play. And Zeke was a good guy, and I thank him because he treated me with a lot of respect. Sure. And you had a tough running back, Dick Bass. Um, oh, the and, best, the best. I've never seen anybody pound for pound any better. I remember my rookie year, Dick returned kickoffs. And was a 1,000-yard runner. Oh, yeah, great guy. And obviously that defensive line, Merlin's a rookie, Lamar Lundy's there, the great Deacon Jones, that defensive line, the fearsome foursome is now starting to come together. When you take, granted, you didn't, you, you, I think you started four times that year, but when you took your first snap, and this is intriguing to me, you mentioned earlier your dad's Filipino. 
when you took your first yeah. snap that year, you became the first NFL quarterback of any of 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 any you know kind of minority to take a snap in the NFL. Tom Flores was playing in the AFL, but you were the first one in the NFL. Was that something that registered with you, or or you know were you aware of that at the time? No, I had no idea any of this. I had no idea. I had too much else to worry about because one of the things I had to learn to do was not speak Southern because I was being from the South. I had that good old boy Southern playing. Right. The first time I landed in practice and went, 225. All the guys stopped and said, what the hell is that? <laughs> so I had to learn not to just go 220. I had to learn to go 220, 220. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's a true story. That's great. And and then it's it's an interesting couple of years because in your first four years, you start 23 times and you're 500, you go 11, 11, and one. All the other yeah. quarterbacks on the roster go four, 27, and two. And yet there's still this thing where you're like, you know, you know, getting starts than not getting starts. And what I found most fascinating was you're the number one pick in 62, second overall. The next year, they picked the Heisman Trophy winner, first overall, Terry Baker from Oregon State. Terry was a, Terry was a pick of Bob Waterfield. And Terry's a great all-around athlete, and if he was playing today, he'd be starting because he had the same skills that Russell Wilson has, the mobility okay. to move around and throw on the run. In fact, as you you might not recall, he played some halfback and did, did, played well for us. Oh, Baker played some halfback too. Interesting. And I know he was a really good basketball player at Oregon State also. Oh, he was good. He he was really good. We became good, decent friends. Yeah. He and I and Bill Munson were all very close. Well, and that's the thing. Yeah, and then Bill Munson the next year is drafted oh, in the first round. Too. Yeah, and he's, he's picked seventh overall out of Utah State. So three years in a row, top 10 picks are used on you, Terry Baker, and Bill Munson. Then What's you that? missed Billy Guy Anderson who came in the next year. He led the NCAA in passing out of Tulsa, if you remember. Okay. Oh, interesting. Um, so, yeah, so those first four years under Harlan's Far, it's, you know, you're getting starts here and there, but it's not consistent. But you're clearly the guy who, when you are starting, the team's got the best chance to win. Um, well, so you'd be surprised under Harlan. He always thought I should be a tight end, so – in practice, I ran routes from tight end and outside receiver and was third quarterback. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Well, and it's interesting, too, because we're, we're talking about Billy Kilmer. I mean, he comes out of UCLA. He's in the College Hall of Fame as a halfback, and he spends his first couple of years in San Francisco as, as a third-string quarterback and a running back, too. So kind of parallel yeah. careers there for a while. Yeah, so, yeah my break came in 65 uh, when – Munson got hurt, and I got to play against Green Bay, Baltimore, St. Louis, and Cleveland, the four best teams in football, and we right. beat three out of four of them. Yeah, and, and you, put up, you put up good numbers in all of those. Um, well, we had victories. That was the important thing is that we won. Right, right. And at that point, you have Tommy McDonald, who's come over from Philadelphia. You've got a young Jack Snow. Rich, let me tell you something. You just named two of the greatest football players I ever threw the ball to that would come across the middle. Jack Snow and Tom McDonald fearless when he came when he come to come coming across the middle. McDonald for his size 
was the toughest little man I think I've ever met in my life, other than Dick Bass. Yeah, and he he can, he put up some big numbers with you guys in those years. Now, let me tell you what, what a great professional Mr. McDonald was. After practice, I would go out and, and take a bag of balls and throw at the goalposts. Right goalpost, left goalpost, top goalpost. As long as I had the goalpost, it would bounce back to me. If I didn't have the goalpost, I had to run and get the ball, so I used that for conditioning too. And then McDonald saw me doing that, so he he came out one day and he said, you know, one day you might be able to play in this league. I like the way you play. You mind if I step in and you throw me around? So Tommy, at the end of my career, he would come out after practice, and he didn't have to. And we used to throw, and so I took that later on when I became the quarterback for George Allen, Jack Snow, and Billy Truex, and I used to do that every day. That's pretty cool. And that's, yeah, that's pretty cool that a veteran like McDonald, who's, you know, he's won championships in Philadelphia, and he's been an all-pro, you know, comes out to a backup quarterback and, you know, offers to help out like that. I tell you, that don't happen too often. Right. And so then, yeah, you just mentioned George Allen. So in 66, you've been there for four years. Harlan Savars let go. George Allen comes in. You immediately start yeah. winning, and you're the starting quarterback now. And then um, – and it's interesting. I was looking at the, the coaching staff. It's amazing some of the guys Allen brought in over the years. But, you know, straight right away, you've got Ted Marchabroda and Howard Schnellenberger in helping coach the offense. Uh you know, who obviously, you know, March Broda would have a ton of success with the Colts. Schnellenberger would win titles, in, you know, at Miami, um, both the Dolphins as an assistant to Shula, but then also at the, with the Hurricanes. And I was also looking at your linebackers. It's an interesting mix. It's like, uh, you know, veterans like Maxie Bond and Bill George, um, guys like yeah. Jack Hardy. I mean, that's, that's quite a defensive, you know, like people always talk about the fearsome foursome D line, but your linebacking core was formidable too. And then to replace uh, Bill George, when Bill George finally retired, uh, my buddy, Myron Pontius, who doesn't get the credit he deserves, he, he was quite a middle linebacker in his own right. Sure. And he, he became, like Pardee, he became kind of a George Allen guy. When George ultimately goes to Washington, he brings both of those guys in, right? Yeah, you mentioned Ted Marchabroda. He taught me a book more about quarterbacking and how to read film than anybody I have had ever next would be John Itzik, who was with the Eagles when I got there. But Ted used to say, you get the most out of film study, watch the whole game, because that's what you want to do anyway. They line up, watch how their feet are, if they're once back, once uh, at the square, then go, go back and watch the linebackers, check them out, and then go back and watch the defensive backs. And invariably, you would come up with different keys. Uh, probably one of the big things we had on the great Tommy Nobis. There's another underrated guy. Remember, played middle linebacker for the Falcons? Sure, out of Texas. We found out, we found out when Nobis was going to blitz, and it was a blitz, he would, you could, he would go bare knuckle. His, his hands would be balled up. And then we were calling all of them head Truex over the middle because Nobis wouldn't be there. When he wasn't going to blitz, his fingers were pointing straight down. And then with the blitz, a lot of times you could read corners because with the zone, they would line up a shade outside and look in at you because they knew they had help inside. But then a lot of them would line up head up and look right at the receiver when they know they had man-to-man. And most of the time, that was the blitz. So okay. those kind of things I learned by 
watching film study because of Ted Marchabrother. And Albert Snellenberger, he was one of your greatest guys once you be in condition. And he was one of those guys who was very strict on quarterback and receiver routes, so everything was on time. Yeah, well, I guess it served him well because then he ultimately was coaching, you know, Jim Kelly and Bernie Kozar and Vinny Testaverde. It's, um, I guess uh, he came by it honestly. And then, and then in '67, you guys really start to to step it up. All of a sudden, <clears throat> you get to the playoffs. You guys go 11-1 and two. You've got two huge games down the stretch that you have to win. Um, yeah. And you you beat the Packers with a late touchdown pass to Casey. And then the next week, you need to beat Baltimore. You go 18 for 22, and the defense sacks United seven times. Tell me what it was like, you know, kind of being in, you know, in a playoff race like that. It was almost like a finalization of our season. We had to play so hard. And, oh, I know what I was going to mention to you. that then the Coach Allen, he believed you did, you did your work on the practice field. So we we practiced, our, all of our practice was three and a half hours, full gear, full pads. And by the time we got in the playoffs, I think we were a little worn down. Interesting, yeah. And and in the playoffs, you lost to Green Bay. It was it was a competitive game early on, and then they just kind of like methodically wore you down, it's kind of like what you're saying. Yeah, they were – on our field, we were better. On their field, they were better than us. Right. Yeah. And and that was one of those flukes of the, the way the playoffs operated back then. You had the better record, but because of the yeah. alternating – you had to go play them at third place. So you had just beaten them in LA two weeks earlier. Now you have to, even though you've got the better record, you have to go play them at third place and they beat you. I remember we got off the plane in Green Bay and it was like, we, we had left LA, it was 80 degrees. And when we get to Green Bay, it's probably, oh, 10 degrees or 15 degrees. And Coach Allen's first thing when we got off the plane, he says, uh, well, guy, because his whole one of his favorites everywhere you were was Ram weather, rain, sleet, snow, whatever it was, Ram's weather. And I said, Coach, pardon me, but I don't mean to disagree. I said, but you do realize that I was the collegiate All-American, which means I'm pretty smart. And 80 and 15, doesn't seem like Ram weather. He said, yeah, but you got to believe, Gabe. I said, okay, I believe you. Okay, let's go. <laughs> That's funny. Um and then the next year, this was this was amazing to me. So you guys have another good year the next year, 68. You're 10-3-1. You go to the Pro yeah. Bowl. But towards the end of the year, it, there's a playoff push. And at this point, only one team per division gets in the playoffs. So you have to win your division. You've got a very close game going against Chicago in the last game or yep. the second to last game of the year. A, a field goal will win it. You get them in field goal range. They call clipping on you. Fine. They back the, yard, the ball up 15 yards. And, but and they plus, don't. If you, you plus, that's a game, if you recall, uh, Jim Purnell came in from the left side on the blitz and planted his helmet in my back, and I had uh, separated ribs and it knocked me out. And I missed almost, I think, a quarter of that game. Okay. And I ended up going back in, and then we, we almost came back in, tied the game. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing reading the clip of it because you, like I said, you, you need a field goal to win. You're in field goal range, but there's a, a clipping call moves it back 15 yards, but the referees forget to replay the down. 
And so yeah. you, you have an incomplete pass and then it's supposed to be fourth down then, but they rule no nope, turnover, you know, change in possession. And it's not until after yeah. the fact that they realize they messed up. And our coaches argued with the people upstairs, but in those days it didn't matter. It was what the officials on the field would call. Right. Oh, it's got to be so frustrating. And that and that basically blew your playoff chance. Yep. Um, and so the next year, you're a pro bowler again. Um, I noticed Dick Vermeil is on the staff now under Coach Allen. Uh, you guys go 11-3. Yeah, Dick Vermeil was the first special teams coach in football. Oh, is that George right? Allen, that's another, you know, as you, if you followed George Allen, which I'm sure you did, Rich, a lot of firsts under Coach Allen. And that was one because in those days you didn't have a, a coach that was specifically designed for special teams. And you could see Dick was become a, become a Hall of Fame coach one day because the way he coached special teams was almost like he was coaching foot the whole team. Interesting. Okay. Oh, that, that's interesting. I didn't realize he was the first special teams coach of all time. Wow, that's crazy. And, and there's also Marion yeah. Campbell is a coach. He would become a coach in Philadelphia and Atlanta later. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, George had a lot of great defensive line coaches. Marion Campbell, and then he had uh, gosh knows, Torgy Torgerson, who was very good. Okay. And and also, I noticed that, I guess it was under Svar, you also had Jack Patera, who would coach the Fearsome Foursome in L.A., then the Purple People Eaters in Minnesota. I mean, that's a hell of a Yeah, he was a good defensive line coach as well. Yeah. And in that 69 season, so you're the MVP of the league. You're a pro bowler. You're the MVP of the league. You put up crazy numbers. And then it's kind of interesting. You're 11-1 and one with two games to go. You've locked in your playoff spot. Coach sits the starters. You lose well, both. Well, you know, that was, that was our fault because we remembered back in 67 when we had run out of gas, and we sort of saw Coach Allen, which I know he didn't want to do, but he decided to relax us a little bit and, it wasn't a bad idea, but we just we were the kind of team that was used to being on the field all the time, and we just couldn't get it back together. Yeah, so you lose a close one in Minnesota uh, by basically a field goal, um, and uh, and so then the next year, uh, the next year. Well, speaking of special teams coaches, Vermeil, uh, I, I guess, becomes the quarterbacks coach, but Marv Levy becomes the special teams coach. That's a pretty yeah, high profile guy. Right? Under Tommy Prothrow. Under Tommy Prothrow, yeah. And and by now, um, Lamar Lundy and uh, Rosie Greer have moved on, but now you've got yep. Coy Bacon and Deron Talbert on the D-line, so you've still got that fearsome force. Actually, that, that, actually, that fearsome foursome had better numbers than the original fearsome foursome. Oh, is that right, with, with Bacon and Talbert? Yeah, but see, you got to recall, they didn't really count sacks back in the old days. Deacon Jones, I know, had more sacks in one year than anybody in the NFL, but they weren't counted. Right. Well, it's funny. I interviewed Jack Youngblood for this show maybe two months ago. And, you know, most of his career also was played without sacks being counted. And But I was looking at it. Somebody has gone back and counted them up. And when Deacon Jones retired – he had the most sacks of anybody in NFL history. 14 years later or whatever it was when Jack Youngblood retired, he had the second most sacks of all time behind only Deacon Jones. I wouldn't Jones. doubt that. 
Yeah. So, yeah, so blood, that, blood was tough. He was tough. Yeah. So that that left defensive end spot, you know, for basically a quarter of a century, had the two top top two sackers up until that point in league history. It's pretty amazing. I know. Um, yeah, Deacon. I, we counted one game. Deacon had more, at least twenty sacks in one game that never got counted. That's that's amazing. That's just ridiculous. Um, the big, the big was. Big thought he was an entertainer, and they opened up this nightclub in Lake Tahoe called King's Castle. Okay. And they had found Deacon thought he could sing, so they invited him up to King's Castle to open up, and he was going supposed to sing and put on the show, and he lost all his money in one week that they were paying him, so he had to stay an extra week and perform. <laughs> he, he, wait, did he lose all the money gambling? Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> so it's basically he had a residency there after a while because uh, he had to stick around to pay off the gambling debts. That's funny. I know. Then we got the great Bob Brown, and during practice, some of our sessions for like five plays, Coach Allen would have Deacon and Bob Brown go one-on-one against each other. You talk about a clash of the bulls. That was a clash of the bulls. Oh my gosh, Bob Brown and Deacon Jones. That's I mean, two Hall of Famers right there, two legends. Well, and that that's offensive right. that offensive line you played behind, as offensive lines we go, have, was kind of underrated. They were quick Bob and fast. Yeah, Kenny Imo was probably the strongest two hundred thirty pound center in the league. Tom Mack at two sixty five was very fast and quick. And Joe Shabilly was short, squatty, but tough as nails. He could, he was one of the best drive blockers in the league. And, and Charlie Cowan, our left tackle at the time, was as good as they came. See, Charlie was a basketball player at New Mexico State. He had as great, greatest feet and hands as anybody in the league. And then we had Bob Brown who just blew you off the line. I remember one game, Stan Hyman of the 49ers challenged Bob man-on-man, came right at him. And then our film, the next thing you saw was Bob had picked him up and threw him back, threw, just threw him in the air. <laughs> and that's incredible. Th- those practices must have been insane with that offensive line and then, you know, the fearsome foursome defensive line. That's just, that's just oh, amazing. It, it was fun. It was fun. <laughs> yeah. And, and Deacon and Merlin were the perfect complements for each other because Merlin could tie up a couple of guys and let Deacon go in and, you know, wreak his havoc. Uh, you know, if they if they had turned Merlin loose, Merlin would have had a lot more sacks too. Because Merlin was the first guy I saw was weighed two seventy five and had a thirty six inch waist, as tough as nails. Yeah, and smart. Uh, he was smarter, probably smarter than anybody on our team. Uh, that's pretty cool. Um, so in that that four year window under George Allen, where you become the starter, you guys go forty one. 14 and three. I mean, that's, that's just a stunning record, you know, for a 14 game season, couple playoff trips. You're the MVP one year, three pro bowls. And then Allen. Well, people tend to forget, you know, tend to, people tend to forget too. They used to have that second place bowl where the two best teams, they got beat by the two best teams in the league. Would sure. play, and we won all of those games. We shut out Dallas in one game and beat Cleveland in another. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of cool. It's like a like a point of pride game almost. Yeah, like um, George says, the beginning of the, of the new year. 
everything was the beginning of the year on the coach Allen. <laughs> um, and then, and then Allen leaves and, and goes to Washington and Tommy Prothrow comes in Tommy, you know, with a, a long record in college football of success. Um, he comes in and, uh, but the, and the Rams, you win, but not as much as you had under George, you go eight, five, and one. Um, I noticed, you know, we were talking about Jack Youngblood. You guys have a hell of a draft one year where you get Isaiah Robertson, Jack Youngblood, and Dave Elmendorf, basically three anchors for your defense for the next decade. But and Jack uh, Reynolds, the middle linebacker. That's right. Hacksaw Reynolds. Was, in too. Yeah. Hacksaw Reynolds. Um, and yeah, uh, pro throw. Prothrow had a good offensive line, but he his worst comment he made is when we had a first team meeting, and he said he didn't think guys over thirty should be playing football, and our best players were over thirty. Right, right, because that was the and George. For Allen. some reason, and then for some reason he was talked into flopping the line like college, where you had a strong side and a weak side, and depending on the call, strong side would go right, weak side would go left or vice versa, but in the NFL, you cannot do that because, for instance, if you're, if, Bob, if Joe Shabelli is responsible for Tom, for uh, Bob Lilly, and then the next play, Tom Mack has got to be responsible for Lilly, it puts double pressure during a film session for these guys to learn more than just one assignment. Sure. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize I'll that. I'll tell you another funny story, too. Yeah. It really was uh, affecting our pass blocking. So we played the Redskins in Washington, and Bob was having trouble blocking this guy because the guy he was trying to block had developed some moves, and Bob was a straight-ahead, million-down guy. So at halftime, I, I brought Bob and Charlie together, and I said, look, Charlie, you're better on your feet with quickness. Bob said stronger in the point. Let's try this. When we go out in the third quarter, Charlie, you move right, and Bob, you go left. And for the second half, we had no problem with sacks or, or knockdowns. And uh, Monday, that Monday, we're watching film, and I couldn't believe this. Brother says, wait a minute. How did this happen? In the second half, I noticed that Bob's at the left tackle and Charles the right tackle. I said, Coach, it wasn't working. We were swap, swapping them off. So I just changed to make it steady, and, and, we, and we played better. I told him, I said, Coach, flopping the line, it just wasn't happening because Bob had trouble blocking his guy on the right side. And then by switching back and forth all the time, it was difficult for both guys to adjust. So knowing that Charlie has a little bit better feet, quickness, I switched him, and, we, and from pass protection on, we didn't flop the line for pass protection. And he didn't notice that until... It worked, yeah. I didn't get knocked down in the second half. <laughs> um, and and it's and it's interesting. You were part of a team that one of the more unique things happened at, at the ownership level. Your owner Dan Reeves dies. Bob Ursay buys the team, and then immediately, because it was a precondition to him buying it, he swaps it with Carol Rosenblum. So Rosenblum, who owns the Colts, is now your owner in L.A. And Ursay goes out yeah. to Baltimore. Did, what kind of impact did that have on the team, or is that something that, like, that's happening at a higher level? It doesn't bother you guys. Well, see, when that happened, that's when they were were getting rid of me, and they 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 hired Chuck Knox, and they brought my buddy John Hadel in, who's 
uh, Johnny had a great career, great quarterback, great guy, great friend. Sure. And they told me that they didn't think that I should be number one because I had been suffering from a knee and arm problem. And I just said, well, do I not get to compete for the number one spot? And they said, no, well, you're going to have to be number two. So that's when I asked for a trade, and I got traded to Philadelphia. Okay. And then they put out word. They put out word that I couldn't take pain. That I was a hypochondriac, and I played my last three years there with a bad, bad right arm, a bad right knee, separated ribs, you know, all that stuff that you get from playing. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that. So they badmouthed you as you walked out the door. So yeah, so yeah, so, oh, yeah. so you get traded to the Eagles basically for Harold Jackson and some picks. That's correct. Um, yeah, this pick. Uh, none of the picks did any good, but Harold Jackson. Right, right. And so then, so then you go to Philadelphia, which had been pretty dreadful the year before you got there. There were two eleven and one. You get there, and it's it's just interesting. You put up insane numbers. You know, three thousand thirty two hundred yards passing at a time when nobody did that. Um, you're the you're you're voted to the Pro Bowl again, All Pro, Comeback Player of the Year. Harold Carmichael is a young receiver. What is he, six foot eight or whatever he was? Um, yeah, I guess we're, before we got there, before, before Boyd Dollar, who came with Mike McCormick as a receiver coach, Harold Carmichael was a tight end. A Boyd made him an outside receiver, and he became the best receiver in football. He deserved that Hall of Fame nod. He should have been done long ago. Nobody could play like Harold. Yeah, and it's funny. I, I talked to Mel Blunt. And Mel and he played together at Southern, actually, with Isaiah Robertson. And Mel tells the story that he was a receiver when he got to Southern. But Harold Carmichael was there as a receiver. And he said, I quickly figured out that if I wanted to, you know, have the ball thrown to me, it wasn't going to happen with that guy there. So he, you know, moved over to corner. It worked out well for both of them because I think they both made each other, you know, better uh, over their years together at Southern. Um, But just kind of... Interesting. Well, Blunt turned out to be one of the greatest corners in football. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I think he would tell you that a lot of that came from going up against Carmichael every day in practice for three years. Yeah, let me tell you what Harold could do. In practice, he would go down to the end of the field and he'll throw punts and only catch him with his right hand and his left hand. Pick him right out there like you're picking grapes off of a tree. Is that right? And then we had a re- we had a reverse play that he was supposed to throw. But he would throw it so far, we couldn't have it done. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. And and you also had a young, I think he was a rookie, uh, tight end. Charlie Young was on that team also. Oh, yeah. And Charlie Young was one of the best tight ends as well. And uh, and so, so you guys have like a three or four game improvement. You've got Carmichael, Young, you're putting up big numbers. You had a good running back in Tom Sullivan. And then you've got played. Don Zimmer. Uh, Don Zimmer, who was six foot five, was at the other end. Okay, right. And Tom Sullivan, running was a uh, running back, rushed for almost a thousand yards. Okay, yeah. So yeah, so all of a sudden, that team, which had been pretty dreadful the year before, you come in. That's the year that you're comeback player of the year, as well as uh, Pro Bowler. But you guys become pretty formidable. And the next year, you step it up, and you're a five hundred team. You're seven and seven. And it looks like things yeah. are moving in the right direction. Um, but then then there was regression the next year. You guys dropped down to four and ten. You know, what happened is I started having trouble with my right knee, which the, the doctor, Dr. DeStefano in 
Philadelphia said, your right knee wasn't put together properly in L.A. last time. And I said, because it would, it would fill up with like 60, 70 cc's of fluid after hmm. each game. And he said, we need to operate it then the season. So they did, and they found not only my ligaments not corrected correctly, not done, but there was part of a suture needed still left that was causing a lot of the, the fluid buildup. You're kidding me. They left a suture needle so in that, your uh, Yeah, part of a suture needle. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So if you recall, that's when uh, they, at the end of that third year, they let McCormick go and brought in Coach Vermeil and, and me having known Dick when he was special team coach, he said, well, I think you probably, he says, I'm going to go with a, a different quarterback next year and and uh, you're, you're sort of beat up, so you should retire. So, well, Coach, would you consider me as maybe a assistant coach? He says, I'll think about it, but in the meantime, just go home. So I went, went home and tried to re- rehabilitate my knee and, See, people don't recall this part of my stay in Philly. And then for some, with four games to go, I think at the time, Mike Barilla, who was a second or third-year quarterback at the time, uh, was was playing for the Eagles, and they weren't doing real well. And so with four games to go, uh, John Idzik, who was an old-timer who had coached Unitas in Baltimore, who believed in old-timers, and of course, like I told you, he was a really good one. He called and he had talked with Miller. He said, look, uh, come to St. Louis, bring bring some clothes, because if we think you can still run and throw, I've talked to him, I'll let you play the last four games. So I flew to St. Louis, met the team, ran up and down the field and threw the ball, and, and Dr. Stefano said, his knee will never be the same, but he moves okay to be able to play. I played the last four games of that year. And then my fifth year, I ended up staying with the team because Dick had asked me if I'd back up Ron Jaworski. He got Charles to be his quarterback. And they, and then, to this day, I wonder if they count that those seasons as part of my my record because I volunteered to hold. I didn't have anybody could hold or field goals and extra points. But I only played, and only played three downs, I think, that season. Yeah, was it and was it? What was it like playing for uh, for Vermeil? I mean, obviously you, you knew him from your LA days. Did you like playing for him? I mean, back then he was incredibly intense. Oh yeah, because remember I told you, he coached special teams the same way he coached, and Dick did learn from his experience in Philly how to slide back just a tad. Because Dick slept in his office, he he tried to do all all of himself, but he's a great really a great motivator. He's a great coach. He's very smart. And he proved that when he went to St. Louis. And they tell me his first year that he was a lot like he was in Philly. But then he found out he had to slide back just a tad and give people more responsibility and and be a head coach. And so he got himself a Super Bowl. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like Tom Coughlin here with the – I'm in the New York area with the Giants. Yeah. You know, very intense. Players basically went to him and said, "You got to back off a little bit." He did, and you know they win two well, Super Bowls. See, the you got to see, a lot of a lot of these young players are spoiled because they they had no idea how this league was formed, and a lot of them don't care. They have no idea how you you spend time, how you had to wear full pads for every practice, and, and now they don't. 
and you had to come to training camp, you, you, and you had and you made fifty dollars a preseason game, and now they get four game checks. So you you had to you got to adjust to the kind of people you have, and yeah. Ed Vermeil is a great adjuster. That's great. And 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 those last two years that you were there is is you know it's kind of been famous made famous in a movie the Vince Pampali story Invincible um do you do you have many you know recollections of that you know him kind of coming off the uh I guess he was like in a semi-pro league and you know made the team at an open tryout do you remember that oh uh, yeah Vinny was probably the ultimate special teams player no one could cover special teams like Vinny uh the, I think the only pass he called us a Starting as a starting receiver was for me. That's oh, one game I played, and I went one for three. Yeah, I played three three downs, and Vinny called a pass across the middle. He was oh. Vinny wasn't a bad receiver, but he was so good on special teams. Dick was afraid to play him anywhere else; didn't want him to get hurt. <laughs> Well, that's so cool. So basically, if 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 I'm following this correctly, the last completion of your career was to Vince Papali. That's correct. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think of it that way, but my his first catch of my last completion. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, that's great. Um, well, and I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious. I mean, you know, obviously you're so you're a quarterback in kind of the golden era of the NFL. You, you know, you're playing on a team with the fearsome foursome. And but you know so many iconic defenses you know Doomsday with Dallas and Bob Lilly and the Vikings with Page and Eller and Marshall, yeah, the, the purple some, people leaders. The purple people leaders, yeah. In fact, uh, over my left shoulder is a, I'm from Minnesota. Over my left shoulder is a picture of Alan Page in a yeah, game against the Redskins. Yeah, that son of a gun intercepted my pass. <laughs> Oh, was that in the playoff game, the one that kind of ended this, ended the uh, the final drive? But I probably, I probably hit him harder than he's ever been hit than when I made the tackle. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, yeah, t- tell me about some of those guys. Tell me about, you know, going up against, uh, you know, Alex Karras and Roger Brown in Detroit. Well, we ended up getting Roger Brown with the Rams, as you probably recall. Sure. It became, he and Dyron Talbert would switch off a lot. Roger, Roger, he, and uh, Roger passed away recently, and there's no reason why he, he shouldn't be in the hall because he was really a star on that Detroit Lions team. And a quick story on him: when he came to us, Coach Allen wanted to get him down under 300 or get him to 300 because he's ranked 350. The coach put him on a, a training table by himself where he only got salad to eat. Mm-hmm. And after a couple of weeks, Roger hadn't lost any weight. Come to find out where we had, we had our training camp in Fullerton at UNC Fullerton. They had a pizza place on campus, and Roger was ordering pizza at night for the pizza place. <laughs> so he's eating the salad had, in front of the coach, and then he's going and eating the yeah. pizza afterwards. And Roger had one of the greatest sports bars in Virginia Beach. He served collard greens and cabbage and all kind of rice, red beans and rice. Because I spoke to their, his uh, sports club one year and it was invited up there and Roger treated me to a nice meal. Oh, that's cool. You know, Roger's kind of guy. He should be in the hall. Alex Karras was 
was a lot like Alan Page. Very good with the hand. Because you remember, Alex was a very good collegiate wrestler. You couldn't let Alex get your hands, even though he wasn't as big as a lot of these guys. But he had such great hand-eye coordination and was quick. And Page was the same way. Page was the strongest guy in the world, but he was fast, quick, and very smart. Uh, Jim Marshall, though, he had a motor that never stopped. He was like the first Roto-Rooter. Never stopped. <laughs> yeah, and, and then you had Eller coming off the other end. Yeah, Eller was just a strong guy that would try to bully you. Right. Eller's from down right near where you're from. Shelby, North Carolina. Yeah. Um, and There's then, another one from the remember that great linebacker that played for the Kansas City Chiefs? He also was from Shelby, North Carolina. Oh, Bobby He's Bell. The Hall of yeah, Bobby Bell. Yeah, and bo both he and Eller, it's funny, from the same town, and then both end up uh, playing for the University of Minnesota. Uh, what about Dick Butkus? Oh, Butkus? Yeah, what about lining up across from him? Until he got his knee hurt, he was the best in the league. Of course, that's saying a lot because the, what made Dick the best, not only is he, he strong at the point of attack, but he, until he got his knee hurt, he was laterally could move as quick as a line as a receiver or a running back. And he had a motor that quit. He, we, we used to tell our guys, when you catch the ball, get out of the end zone because if you don't, Dick will hit you in the end zone. Dick <laughs> hit anything that moved. But then you had Ray Nitschke, who was just as good at the point of attack and, and probably just as great, but not quite as mobile as Dick. Okay. And Tommy Novus on a team that never won Atlanta, he averaged over 300 tackles a year. Mike Curtis with the Eagles, with the Baltimore Colts, he had that same kind of speed, quickness. He was smaller. He was one of the small linebackers. Yeah. And people don't and people don't remember how good Joe Smith, the old Lions, was, and of course Bill George, two of the best. Yeah. And and then of course you can't forget the the steel curtain up in Pittsburgh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that maniac can never be a linebacker spot. <laughs> Lambert? That maniac. Yeah, I call him a maniac. Would yeah, he, Lambert. He was he, a different kind. Of, he was a tall, rangy guy with long arms. You couldn't get to his body because of his long arms. Very smart guy. Right. And the problem with them was if you tried to run it away from him, now you're going up against the defensive ends, Greenwood and Dwight White. And you got Andy Russell and Jack Ham behind them coming in off the outside. Well, they had to. And Donnie Shell, a strong safety, finally got in the hall. He he deserved that. And you had uh, Blount at the corner. They had such a great football team. Yeah. Joe that, Green. Mean Joe. Yeah, that's when, in a He hit me so hard, I swallowed my red man. Because we used to shoot a lot of red men, and I forgot to take it out when I went into the quarterback against the Steelers. He hit me so hard I swallowed it. <laughs> That's amazing. It's amazing that you were that you had red man in your mouth in a game. That's crazy. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, who who were the toughest defensive backs to go against? Uh, you know, back in the day. I mean, obviously there's Adderley and Wood and guys like that in Green Bay. Jimmy Johnson for the 49ers. Adderley, 
you named them. Adderley, Jim Johnson, and Mel Renfro were the three best. Uh, then comes Jeter and Dick LeBeau. Both of them were very good, of course. And then Lombardi, but you could beat Lombardi because he guessed a lot. But he was exceptional. Those were the top guys that I can recall. Sure. And and on your own team, you guys had a couple of, of stud defensive backs. I mean, Meter doesn't get nearly enough attention. Um, oh, know- hey, you talking about somebody? Do you ever look up his stats? He has better stats than any of those safeties that are in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. yeah Eddie Meter. Block, he used to block field goals. He had something like 40 interceptions. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think I, might, I looked it up. It was even like 46 or 47. And I, yeah. he, he's just started to get some, like, some hype for the Hall, but I don't think it's happened yet. But, yeah, he's, I think he's the leading interceptor in Ram history. Well, you know, the problem with the Hall of Fame, that, that Hall of Fame is a lot of times they wait till guys die when it don't matter. Like my good friend Kenny Stable, I don't know how he could have been kept out. He has died. He has died to get in. Right. Uh, and he's having health problems. No, we all are, but that's life. Um, who Who were some of the quarterbacks you like to watch? I mean, you mentioned Sonny Jurgensen and Billy Kilmer earlier. Who are some of the other guys you, you liked watching back then, and then you like watching now? Of course, Russell Wilson because he's from. He played at NC State, and I like the way the rules are now because it allows somebody with his kind of skills. To would be great. And then, of course, I used to watch Phil Rivers because he's from my school. Sure. And Tom Brady, I got. I have to watch him play because he's so slick, he don't ever get hit. I wish I could have played right and get hit. But then I might not have been any good because I played better when I got hit. But Brady <laughs> is so efficient. And uh, my buddy who just retired from the Steelers, the big guy. Oh, Ben Roethlisberger. Yeah, no, he, nobody, nobody any better than him. Yeah, uh, and Aaron Rodgers, he's slick. He comes as close to being able to throw the ball because he throws some a lot of hot sidearm like Jerky. So I would say Aaron comes as close to Jerky as any of them up there I've ever seen. Who Aaron Rodgers? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And I, I saw you talking one time about Jack Snow, uh, who, you know, was a receiver with you guys out of Notre Dame. And you said something like he wasn't blazingly fast, but he but he was one of those guys who when he had the ball, he just had that ability to separate, which, you know, is what they've always said about Jerry Rice too. talk. Talk a little bit about see, Jack Snow. I see, they should test these guys on grass fields because most of the fields are still grass. Whenever they test these guys out of college, they sure. should have to run with full gear and in football shoes. See, Jack was faster in full gear than he was in shorts. And real quick story. When we'd all retired, I ran a football camp down. And I was, at the time when I was assistant football coach under uh, Ray Butcher at College of the Desert in Palm Desert, California. Okay. And I ran football camps down there. And one year, two years in a row, I had Jack come down. And Jack coached the receivers. And then during the practice, he'd run with the, with the kids that we had just to get time. He he ran the same time after retirement than he did when he played. He played. 
out, out of football gear, Jack was a four seven, four six five guy, and he still ran that same time after retirement. And now Swanee, when he was in the football gear and somebody was chasing, I think he ran four four. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. His son went on to become a hell of a baseball player, J.T. Snow. Yeah, he was pretty good at what he did. Yeah. Um, well, I have to, I mean, first of all, it's been great just, you know, kind of walking back and oh, well, let me ask you this. Um, you, you played for a number of legendary coaches, right? Between Tommy Prothrow and George Allen and Dick Vermeil. Any coaches you know, stand out for you on, on that front? Uh, and also, were there any coaches out there that you would have loved to have played for that, you know, you didn't cross paths with? Well, I got to play for two of the best in the Pro Bowl. Actually, three of the best in the Pro Bowl. I played for Lombardi and one. No, no, not Lombardi. I'm sorry. I played for Tom Landry and one Pro Bowl. And that's the, and here's a tr- trivia question for you. The only Pro Bowl that was ever played in Kansas City. Oh, is that right? Interesting. And we both teams practiced in San Diego because it was too cold in Kansas City. And we went to Kansas City the Friday before the Sunday game. Huh. The only one. That's interesting. I and guess then that's I got to play for I got to play for Don Shula in a Pro Bowl and of course Outside of Jurgensen, Unitas and Bart Starr were two of the greatest guys got to play against and with. Yeah. Oh, that's 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 so cool. Well, it's, it's so cool listening to all these stories um, and you know, kind of hearing about you know the arc of your career from the days in North Carolina, obviously at NC State and and you know through uh, LA and Philadelphia. I, I thought I would end with this. I thought this was really cool. I found it. Indulge me because it's gonna take a second to read it. It, it started off as a tweet from Cooper Cup, who... Uh, oh, Cooper, yeah. He, I, he and I corresponded. I, 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 he's so good. That guy is such a great player. Yeah. Well, and yeah, and, and, it's, and it's cool seeing your response to this. So I'll read this. So for the listener, Cooper Cup was number one in high school, Jersey number one in high school, then number 10 in college. And then when he got to the Rams, the 10 was taken. So he was number 18. And he sent out this tweet about two years ago, says, you all have gotten to know me as number 18. And that means a lot to me. Now, though, it's time for me to return to my home and for me to embrace the next stage of my career in number 10, my true number. To Roman Gabriel, the Rams 18, and your family, I have so much respect for what you have given to the game and the Rams. I hope I've done your number well. God bless and go Rams. And then you reply, I enjoy watching Cooper Cup play hard-nosed, tough football with great hands. My dad always told me that the harder you work, the harder it is to surrender. My number could not have been given to anyone better. God bless Roman Gabriel, 18 also. And then a year later, they go out and win a Super Bowl. Yeah. Um, so I, I just thought that was such a cool, you know, kind of exchange between you and, you know, a current star for the team. Well, Roman Gabriel, I have to tell you, it's been so cool talking to you about, uh, you know, your, your days growing up in Wilmington and, and watching as a young boy, watching Sonny Jurgensen play at your high school and then, uh, you know, playing for your high school yourself 
and then your days at NC State and with the Rams and with the Eagles. Um, it's, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you today. And Rich, and my closing remarks, I will tell you that Sonny and I played for the best, probably the best coach you could play for. That was our high school coach, uh, Leon Brogdon. At his time, won over 60 state championships as a high school coach. And last but not least, Rich, it's been a real pleasure to be on your Chase Hardware. And thank you for all the easy questions to answer because at least now I haven't been hitting head that much that I can't remember the great things and my great teammates. And and thank you so much for thinking of an old timer. And God bless you, my friend. Uh, well, thank you very much, Roman. I appreciate it. These stories were great. Thank you again for coming on to Chasing Hardware and take care. Well, you behave yourself, Rich. <laughs> I will. I promise. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye now. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.